Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Atlanta Council. Thank you very much for coming to this fourth live event of the Art of Future Warfare project. This one's entitled Envisioning the Future of Urban Warfare. Um, this afternoon, we'll have a really interesting panel in a discussion about how art and creativity can illuminate thinking about international security and armed conflict, and in this particular case, how visual art can inform our, our understanding of what urban warfare might look like in the 2040 to 2050 timeframe. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm a Atlanta Council Vice President and Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security. We're, in, we're increasingly drawing on this, um, on people, experts, and leaders in this field to help us with strategic planning, with thinking about the future, with looking at global trends, and with developing strategies to deal with those trends, as well as with associated challenges and opportunities. Um, uh, in Washington, we often discuss the challenges of international security with a generally shared mindset of uh, things that are broadly accepted and within traditional parameters. And time and again, we're surprised at how rapidly developing uh, global security events prove that the parameters that we had in mind and the assumptions that we took for granted are shaken or are false or are misaligned. And so that's really one of the prime motivations of this growing body of work um, for which I give Steve Grunman, who is the director of the uh, uh, Emerging Defense Challenges practice as the George Lund Fellow, give him enormous credit for just continuing to build this into something that is really, really something that uh, helps people to expand their mindset and to imagine a future that's different from today. So these are the reasons why we launched the Art of Future Warfare project in the, in the Brent Scowcroft Center under the direction of um, Senior Fellow August Cole, uh, who is also here. Um, we're seeking to engage people with a different mindset, creative people and working artists, not that people in Washington aren't creative. Um, it's looking in particular to my speakers for their reaction to that comment. Uh, in thinking though about how complex and nonlinear futures uh, that will unfold certainly across this decade and this century and how those dynamics may shape and animate global security, uh, armed conflict, and planning. And so more specifically, this project is meant to cultivate a community of interest in works and ideas arising from the intersection of creativity and expectations about emerging antagonists and competitors, disruptive technologies, and also novel um, operational military and defense concepts. The project is employing various forms of crowdsourcing to generate content, and today's event is, in fact, the capstone of what we call a war art challenge that the project issued this spring. So using a series of artistic prompts, the challenge elicited images depicting what urban warfare might look like in the future. Uh, we chose a winner, and now we can discuss the implications of the piece while engaging this excellent panel of experts. And now let me briefly introduce them, so I don't have to listen to myself, but we get to listen to them as soon as possible. Uh, Max Brooks is the New York Times best-selling author of World War Z and has written the acclaimed Harlem Hellfighters graphic novel. He speaks regularly to military audiences about leadership and what wars from World War I to a possible systemic breakdown like he depicted in World War Z might look like. John Chang is the writer of the very realistic Black Powder Red Earth graphic novel series about American mercenaries in a near-future Middle East. He is also Chief Creative Officer at Haley Strategic Partners, a tactical equipment training and design firm. Aaron Simpson 
is the CEO of Keras Associates, and we're very happy to welcome her back to the Atlanta Council. Uh, she is a leading specialist in identifying data and research requirements for complex environments. She previously served as the strategic advisor to ISAF's counterinsurgency advisory and assistance team, where she regularly advised senior military commanders throughout Afghanistan on a very broad range of issues. Alex Brady is a concept artist working in games, film, and product design, living in Cambridge, Cambridge, England. She was the winner of the War Art Challenge on Urban Warfare and the creator of the image that you see uh, displayed right here. Guiding today's conversation will be the director of the Art of Future Warfare Project, whom I mentioned a few moments ago, August Cole. He is a writer, analyst, and consultant specializing in national security issues. He's a former defense industry reporter um, for the Wall Street Journal and MarketWatch.com. Among many other accomplishments, he's the author of the novel that I'm currently reading with a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. Can't wait. I'm like about two-thirds through, so I can't wait for the rest. <laughs> uh, the novel is Ghost Fleet, written with Peter Singer, um, another very prominent voice in this space in this town. Uh, and it, appropriately, appropriately enough, it is, quote, a novel of the next world war, unquote. It goes on sale next week. In fact, uh, in this very room, we're hosting an event featuring both August and Peter on July 7th. So please mark your calendars a couple weeks from, from now. The, the council is committed to bringing new voices and perspectives to the national security conversation and to exploring new ways from well outside our usual, um, our usual fields to bring those voices to bear. So you'll hear those perspectives today. I doubt you'll find anywhere else uh, in Washington in particular that shows off this kind of expertise in very different frameworks and points of views. These panelists care very deeply about the issues they write about. We had a very um, interesting and um, uh, enlightening conversation over lunch uh, uh, that covered a lot of the issues we'll cover no doubt today. Uh, so it's really passion paired with deep knowledge, and I very much look forward to their conversation and would now like to turn it over to August Cole, and thank you very much. So we're going to begin this talk uh, with a conversation with Alex Brady, uh, which I will do from the stage here, and then our panelists will join shortly after. It'll be about five minutes, but a chance for Alex to talk about the great image that she has created for our, for our context. Alex, thank you for joining us uh, by Skype from England. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's lovely to be here. Thank we've you. Got, we've got great audio, so we hear you just fine. We've been uh, showcasing your image in the lobby and also in the room here. Talk a bit about how we might interpret that in the context of the future of urban warfare. Well, I, I grew up um, watching Vietnam and it's very difficult to come away from those thinking that war is any kind of fun, even though it's, it can be dramatic and exciting and, uh, uh, you know, as, as a kind of fantasy, it's certainly not something that I'd ever, um, uh, you know, want to experience myself. And, and watching uh, Syria descend into chaos uh, in the early sort of 2011-2012 kind of time, that really started to weigh on me because I was working on uh, video games, violent video games, which, you know, I, I very much enjoyed. But it started to kind of concern me that I was uh, taking part in an almost um, fetishization of weapons, which, you know, as I grew older, it started to trouble me a bit more. And I guess this image was the kind of expression of that, of that feeling. I mean, I, I'm very, I'm very, I, I tend to not ever put any kind of political statement into my work, but it, it, I guess it just kind of, um, 
Osmo's into the world, feeling his concern about uh, the, the state of, of Syria. Syria being relevant in particular because I felt it was caused by a giant drought. The war seemed to be caused by uh, a mega drought that was taking place in the Levant, which to me is something that I think we will be dealing with a great deal in the future. When, when you create an image like this with a massive piece of military equipment, it sends a statement in and of itself, especially in contrast with the woman who is in defiance standing in front of it. So talk about that visual tension that you've created there. Well, obviously the, the image harks back to the events in July 1989 in Tiananmen Square, where this uh, unknown man stood up to the might of the Chinese army and, and briefly stopped this column of tanks in its tracks, literally, which I, I thought was an incredible image. It was interesting when we discussed the piece before uh, we did this, that in fact there was a second interpretation, which was that perhaps she was in fact uh, a terrorist, and the bombs were hidden within her car or within the shopping bag. That's not a, an interpretation I at all expected, because it was definitely, from my point of view, a feeling of solidarity with the civilians living in war, uh, and, and this kind of sense that civilians, through brave, um, non-violent protest, can change history, even against the, the might of military-industrial complex. It seems that is one of the challenges in looking at some of these very complex environments like big cities, that military force may not be the solution that ultimately preserves peace or arrives at it. When you're working in the video game field, talk a bit about some of the design work you're doing there and how that's informing your future work uh, in, uh, in, in this context. I do uh, a lot of vehicle design for uh, battlefields. Um, which is essentially just creating alternate universe versions of existing vehicles. But um, it certainly makes me consider the two sides of, of this debate, because on the one hand, you have um, violent video games and war films and action movies and horror films and sports and all of these other ways that we've sort of formalized and ritualized tribal conflict uh, in a way that is healthy and fun. Whereas, obviously, the, the alternative is, is total conflict, which is it's the worst suck that we can bring to life as, as, as people, I think. I mean, on the one hand, humans have evolved as hyper-social tribal beings, which, you know, we've, we've, been, um, we've been at war since the beginning of history. It's kind of man's whole uh, USP, really, war. But we've, we've managed to, at times, uh, more uh, harm, harmless pursuits like as like as a sport to kind of, as a way of letting off steam. So I think that people who attack violent video games perhaps perhaps are wrong. I think that, that, that in fact violent video games can be um, just as healthy as, as an exciting sport uh, and not not something that encourages violence as perhaps they are occasionally accused of doing. Well, Alex, congratulations on winning the War Art Challenge. Uh, we are enjoying uh, displaying your work here at the Council, and thank you for participating via Skype all the way from Cambridge. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really exciting, and I'm looking forward to the rest of the debate. Great. Thank you. So what we're going to do now is bring the rest of our panelists to the stage. Uh, we'll take seats here uh, up in front of the room and begin our conversation. So as Barry has introduced uh, our 
our panelists here, uh, Max, Aaron, and John. I'll get right to it because I think we want to start this conversation. But I first, I'm going to delay just a little bit just to mark the moment to say that at a think tank in the lobby, we've got comic books. <laughs> and on the screens, we have some extremely creative images, as Barry said, by, by very dedicated and talented artists. And I think that combination is really important to acknowledge and recognize because it speaks to the contribution that the creative community can have. This is very much the ethos of the Art of Future Warfare project, which Steve has really set a high standard for, and I think an event like that meets it. So thank you all for coming and supporting the event. And I don't want to talk, I want to listen to what our guests have said. And I'm actually going to start with you, Max, to talk a bit about your focus on urban chaos that we have seen in World War Z, we have seen in the Extinction Parade, which if you're not familiar with is another graphic novel series that pits uh, this doesn't quite do it justice, but vampires versus zombies. Uh, but it really raises some very fundamental questions about order and chaos and how we exist together in close proximity. Well, I think uh, as far as <clears throat> when we talk about urban combat, especially counterinsurgency, uh, I think that we've got to get away from the mindset of it being a military operation. I, I think that from an American standpoint, urban warfare, urban counterinsurgency, urban peacekeeping plays to our fundamental strengths and our fundamental weaknesses. And one of our biggest fundamental, I don't know if it's a weakness, but it certainly is a, a conundrum, is that we are the world's first isolationist superpower. We're, we're the first nation ever that has been given so much power and so much control that we do not necessarily want. And when we do get it, we don't necessarily know what to do with it. Uh, I think everybody remembers right after the statue of Saddam came down, the first question was, when can we leave? You know, there's new episodes of Friends on we want to go see. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember in the 2008 election when John McCain said, if we're going to stabilize Iraq, we're going to be there for 100 years. And the American public said, are you kidding? And as a result, he's not our president. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, that's a fundamental conundrum within the American soul is, how do we deal with the rest of the world when culturally we don't really understand it? We're not sure we want to understand it. So in that way, it's a weakness. One of our greatest strengths, I think, is our multiculturalism in that no matter where our forces are deployed throughout the world, we have a diaspora living in this country in large amounts. I mean, I, I personally don't understand why CENTCOM is not based in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, because no matter where you go, there's a, there's a huge community there that's willing to talk, willing to teach. Uh, I think Americans could be much more effective if we did a lot less talking, a lot more listening, mm. a lot more embedding before there's a crisis. Uh, and the great thing about training for megacity combat is we have megacities here. They are massive, they are multicultural, and thanks to the gun lobby, they are armed to the teeth. <laughs> You know, Aaron, our understanding of, of uh, anthropological data is going to grow as we have the Internet of Things. You know, we walk forward to the 2030s, the 2040s, the 2050s. So from, a, from that perspective, you know, our, our cultural and, and almost uh, tactical understanding of mm -hmm. these extremely complex environments that we can not really even capture in a single photograph unless you are almost in space. Right. Mm. What is the role that data is going to play in our understanding with that? And capturing as data is one thing and doing something with it is another. Yeah, I mean, those are two. I think there's, there's uh, you know, they talk about the ubiquity of sensors. And um, uh, we talk a lot about kind of the explosion of connectivity, and whether that's, you know, smartphones or, or other devices, um, publicly available information. 
uh, make it possible to, to instrument cities in a way that really wasn't before. And that's everything from the IBM Smart Cities Initiative to um, you know, secret police states who are able to, to track a, a wide array of, of human activity. Um, making sense of any of that, having that available to you for a particular purpose and all in one place is actually quite a different uh, mm -hmm. you know, kettle, kettle of fish. Um, I think one of the things, there's again, as, as Max sort of said, there's some opportunities but also some real limitations to, to some of this. Um, you know, ideally, you would be able to take certain amounts of that data that would let you move away from um, population sentiment or how people think or feel about any one thing and look at really how the city behaves as a system, how the behaviors of people within a city, what their movement patterns look like, who they're, how they talk amongst people in their, in their friend or professional networks, uh, where they get food, where people get water, um, you know, where all the port workers live and how they're migrating in and out of, of the city. Um, these are all things that we've actually worked on on a year-long megacities project at, at Keras. Um, that kind of information can be enormously valuable. You still can't reduce the city down, however, to a component part, right? It's not an engineering problem in that sense, it's a systems problem. Uh, and all small poking and interventions at it cause it to, to change in some way. So, so John, when you're working on black powder, red earth, you're creating a, a Middle East environment, Iraq, that is in the near future, that is probably more like uh, the now than it was when you started, uh, for better or for, for worse, I guess. But what you're doing also is taking almost an artistic approach to that same basket of data because your work is heavily researched, and yet you have a defined vision that you put into a graphic novel. Do you see that ability to take art as an expression of data you know, in the future as we better integrate those two? Certainly with BPRE, the, um, the story is derived from what we thought was going to happen. You know, there was a lot of research. It was, it was from people on the ground, though. I don't have the luxury of being I don't have the 30,000 foot view all the time of what I'm writing about. I talk to the guys who are tasked with implementing these policies and the reality of that. And, and that's where, that's where that's, you know, I think that's why we were able to get so much of the stuff right in our book. Not, not to say that everybody was able to understand it, but, uh, you know, but when we were talking about this at lunch, how not all Americans were even aware that there were multiple kinds of Muslims. You know, even today, you know, or that the insurgency wasn't just one group that we were that that was fighting; it was disparate groups that are still fighting. Mm -hmm. You know, Aaron, in, in taking those really complex data sets and creating a visualization from them, obviously that's something we can do today. But is there a almost uh, audience that can be developed within the intelligence mm -hmm. community within the military for more narrative interpretation or or derivation from that, or is that just a bridge too far? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think it's telling that um, when you ask folks who work in the, particularly in the inter, uh, Intel Fusion space, you know, what the what their requirements are, what their what tools they really want, they come back to fiction. The answer is always Minority Report. Um, they want to be able to flip things around, have it all, you know, showed up in front of them, and you know, beautiful sort of glass, you know, pieces. Um, you know, the the narrative piece of that. You could imagine, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, interest in people and mo complex models where you change one parameter and then you get this alternate future. And it's possible that that could be a lot more compelling if that was done in a sort of uh, short story or, you know, five-minute clip, you know, movie view of the world, almost like a video game, as opposed to, uh, you know, a terrible agent-based model that doesn't actually make sense in the, sure. in the real world. I mean, you know, in thinking about the question of basic resiliency uh, as a strategic issue, as a, as a national priority, you can write easily a 30-page, 35-page think tank report and 
you all will say you have read it, but you may not yet. You could read <laughs> World War Z or another of your, of your kind of creative works. And so Max, talk about how the art that you've done and that you see out there can narrow that gap. You know, it can be both entertaining, but also actually have utility. Well, I think, I think uh, th there, there is a, a huge problem in this country, which is a, a cultural chasm between the American people and the systems that are in place that keep them safe and keep them alive. And, and I think in, over the course of my lifetime, I'm, I'm 43, in the last four decades, I've seen a degradation of the education systems that remind Americans why they pay their taxes. Why, when they turn on the tap, they're not going to die of a disease. Right. Why, when there's an earthquake, where all these systems come from. And the problem is, there's an ego defense mechanism if you try to hit them head on with these facts. People either get too scared and they tune out, or they get too bored and they tune out. So if you can set it in the context of something safe and entertaining, like a zombie plague, you still have a chance to talk about things like the Defense Logistics Agency. And people are being educated without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think that's the interesting challenge, is to tell fascinating stories, yet have people walk away from them uh, being smarter and being more aware of the world that they live in. I mean, there are, there are certainly places in the world you can go that you don't understand until you've been there and you've smelled what it smells like to stand on a street corner or felt the heat, although today is probably some example <laughs> of facsimile of other parts of the world. Um, but this is where we find a lot of value in visual narrative. And you know, though none of us have been to Alex Brady's image to that, to that point on that highway in a country that we don't even really know the name and may not even matter for the purposes of discussion. But the point being is that we are being able to, we are transported to, to a place. And that's something, John, I think I'd love to hear you talk about. What, what tricks do you use as a writer? Because most of the writers in the audience, both here and online, are writing in a very uh, programmatic way, policy papers and such. But you, as a writer in the graphic novel field, have different toolkits to use. Well, sort of like Max was saying about, you, you know, you want to make an entertaining experience as well as a, an informative experience. I mean, that's part of the reason I write the kind of material I write as well. Um, to be honest, for us, I mean, it's just tons and tons of research. Yeah. Like all, uh, you know, you, you, you were, he was talking about at lunch, the buttons on the uniforms had the wrong, the wrong <laughs> notification. We had in one of the books, uh, the guy, the artist drew the, the unit ID patches wrong on the soldiers, uh, the assaulters the kit. So we had him go back <laughs> and redraw all the patches to make sure the correct nomenclature was there. Um, it, so much of it is, and I, when I was writing the first years, I lived in New York City, which you know, you're saying Dearborn, Michigan, man, I, can, I used to go out of my office and there was a mosque one block away. The next block was a different mosque with a different group of people. I wanted to get Pakistani food, I could go there and, listen, and watch you know, the Pakistani rock music and eat food and chat with people who had just come over or were hanging out. And I mean, I learned a lot of what I learned from talking to people who had just come over from those countries and just looking at their photography, the mm -hmm. you know, family albums, iPhone pictures. You can learn so much from that and it really informs uh, you know, from their words, what was going on in their cultures. So let's say we were tasked with looking into the 2040s and 2050s, very much the mandate of the, the creative challenge. How do you do research for the future, Max? Well, I think uh, when you look forward, I think there's a lot of looking back. I think we can learn a lot of history. I mean, for example, everything that I put in World War Z is based on historical events. So when people say to me that could never happen, I say, yes, it could. Uh, it did. The Battle of Yonkers was not something I made up. The Battle of Yonkers was Isandwana, where, where our British cousins took a horrific pasting from the Zulus. Uh, 
And then there's also just looking sideways. You don't even have to look backwards. I remember right before the invasion of Iraq, arguing, with, ironically, with fellow writers in SNL about what occupation of Iraq would be like. And they said, well, where do, you, where do you get that from? I said, look at the West Bank and Gaza. It's already happening. So I don't think it takes much to look around to extrapolate what the future could hold. Aaron, if you were to think about what you would want to know, what you'd be able to bring to uh, a, a, a user in the Intel community, mm -hmm. you know, if you could reach forward into the future and pull information back, this is putting you on the spot a bit, but what is, mm -hmm. what is that brass ring that has, has extreme value, not just today, but also thinking forward, because analytics will evolve and the way we operate will evolve? Sure, no, I mean, I think you know, the short answer is you know, there, there isn't probably a single brass ring. Um, the, I'm very much driven by, by human behavior and, and organizational behavior, right? So what do people actually do in their day-to-day -day lives? Um, I'm a political scientist by, by training, um, and so looking within a given city of how, not just who has power, but what is the source of it, right? So is it because you have access to water, or you have access, you control access to the port, or you control the village where all the people who know how to work the water station come from, right? There are different places where um, we, we might think about some basic you know, human requirements and then see what goes from, from there, but those kinds of Hierarchies are not fixed, um, and you know things that are in scarcity tend to generate a certain amount of, of power. Um, and you know those would be some of the kinds of things you know we probably start to, to look at. There's also a big you know geospatial element to, to this, um, and how is that power distributed across the landscape of, of the city? Uh, and figuring out some of those logics is pretty important. When you, when we look at the image of this massive tank. It reminds me of Norm Augustine's law. We at one point talked about how the Defense Department will buy one fighter, and I can't remember the exact year, but the point being that things grow in capability and, and in cost. Uh, there's also something to be said in that image that to look at the futility of, of military hardware in addressing some of these problems in the urban context. Uh, we had a Google Hangout chat recently, and this came up, that putting a tank on a corner was actually more problematic than problem solving in a, in a, in a very acute near-term sense, not even in a long-term sense. And so what do you think that balance, Max, will, will, will tip back and forth? Or do you think we're already seeing some truths that yeah. will be true today, but also true well into the future? Well, I think culturally, it plays to one of our strengths. Because as Americans, one thing we're actually good at is reinventing ourselves. You know, as a young country, as a country that's constantly having new blood of immigrants, is we're not afraid to change the rules of the game. We're not afraid to be uncomfortable. I mean, if you look at every war we've ever fought, the army that marched into World War II, World War I, our Civil War, is very different than the army that marched out. We're very good at changing, uh, as opposed to, say, a war like Vietnam, where we kept trying to stick to what we knew and what was comfortable. And we, we see that. When we try to be psychologically comfortable, and feel good about ourselves. And we always want to feel like a high school senior and do what we do well, we're in trouble. Uh, you would think we would have come out of Vietnam with the best counterinsurgency school in the world. But we didn't. We said, we're going to go back to West German fold-a-gap tank warfare because we feel like a senior, not a seventh grader. And I think one of the keys psychologically is to always try to feel like a seventh grader. Mm -hmm. Always try to feel like the dumbest person in the room because then you're learning. You know, John, the, the series that you have created spends a lot of time inside the car, so to speak, with the operators that you depict. You're very privy to their kind of intimate conversations, the routine aspects of really dangerous and often horrific work. What do you think that's going to be like in the future, the role that, that those 
private operators will have, but also what that might be like as technology evolves, as, as uh, policies and practices evolve too. You're carrying some of that forward in your new, your new uh, uh, next sort of installation, I know that, but, but even beyond that. Um, well, you know, in the context of like a 2050, 2040, I mean, the, the tools may change, but the techniques don't. Okay. Um, you know, undercover police work is similar today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. The, you know, the militarization of the police is, is in often response to the people they have to go and, uh, and uh, I guess what you enforce the law on, whether it's, you know, mostly narcotics, right? Um, and I think the same is going to be true overseas, you know, as you have bigger states, bigger or bigger cities, you have more smaller interests, like more diversity, and those interests aren't always going to work well together. And, you know, as a state actor, if it wants to have, you know, if a government wants to have influence, they have to deal with those on an on on individual level, like the, the human level, like you're talking about. Um, and I would go so far as to say, you know, when I talk to undercover NYPD guys about going and doing hits in, on a crack house, they say the same things as soft guys who have to do a hit in Mosul. It's like, oh yeah, they see you coming in, they start yelling something, or they sound the call to prayer, and you know, guns come out, people get shot. So what do they? How did they address that? They stopped going in Humvees. They stopped wearing uniforms. They started wearing clothing. You know, low visibility body armor. You know, it's not about like a massive force presence. It's about being able to do the stuff in a more I guess uh, a, a more law enforcement-like fashion, but you're still executing a military mission. I mean, I, I kind of differ from some people in that I think the mission of counterinsurgency, I mean, the mission of counterinsurgency is almost like dealing with organized crime. You know, there's a godfather, and then there's a bunch of different families and people who work for the godfather. And the godfather is just trying to keep everybody fighting with each other, right? You, you don't want peace in a region. You want balance of power. And that's, that, that is what I see as a goal, especially as things get bigger. I mean, and then you have corporate interests, which are as strong, if not stronger, than government interests. So you see those it's, actors changing and evolving. Yeah, I, I definitely see it being more about money than about, about notions of states. I think there's also, I mean, there was a movie which I think had one line which personified how Americans feel about foreign policy. It, it was not a good movie. It was called Pearl Harbor. And I'll, I'll slam it. I don't care. <laughs> Michael Bay ain't here. And if he was, I would tell him. And there was a line which I know the, the RAF group captain will roll his eyes, where when the first Japanese planes come over and drop a bomb, one American goes, wow, I think World War II just started. To which the Europeans and the Japanese and the Chinese went, duh. Because I think that goes to the heart of our isolationism. What we don't understand in many conflicts, that round one for us is usually round seven or eight for the other guy. Mm -hmm. And when we look forward to a future conflict in 2050, that military conflict of 2050 is happening right now, not as a military issue, but as an environmental issue, a social issue, an economic issue. The wars have already started. So but the they kindling is being yeah. assembled, and it's just waiting to be. It's not a war yet. Right. And pro chances are that the actual shooting will start in 2030 and then draw us in. And then we will say, wow, I think World War III just started. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to be more aware of that kindling. Mm -hmm. What are the conflicts starting today that are not yet conflicts? Aaron, when you kind of look globally, do you have any uh, air, geographies and, and locations that kind of come to mind in that, in that urban context particularly that are particularly worrisome? I mean, I think, you know, any of the cities that, I mean, I, maybe the first piece of that is certainly the, the military right now. Uh, the U.S. military is very fixated on megacities. 
Uh, and, and that's sort of understandable. It's a, you know, kind of a classic you know, quantity as a quality, all its own sort of challenge. You could drop a brigade of the United States Army off in, Mo in uh, Lagos, and most people wouldn't have any idea that anything had happened, right? I mean, you could do, it would just swallow you know, uh, several thousand troops without much. Uh, you could drop a division, and most people probably wouldn't notice in, in Lagos or Karachi. Um, that said, we know what those cities are, are like for the most part. Um, and we know sort of their size and, and kind of trajectories, not in any great you know, micro level detail, but the macro picture is pretty well set. So one of the things that we're certainly looking at is what are those you know, cities that are a few rungs down in size, mm. um, you know, sort of like what is the future DACA, right? right. What are the mm. places that have just incredibly rapid, unplanned urbanization uh, occurring right now that cities are unlikely to be able to cope with um, state governments are not be able to cope with. And that creates this real, you know, governance gap, which I think is the next term for it. Um, you know, social scientists in the room might be familiar with Jim Scott's, uh, you know, idea of legibility, which is, you know, the idea of having street names and addresses and a census and a way mm -hmm. of sort of the state imposing order on, on a population. Very dry reading, but very important concept for understanding you know, why slums seem particularly vexing um, right. and from, a, from a governance perspective. And that's where you then get this opportunity for non-state actors. Um, you know, nature abhors a vacuum and so does a city. And so just because a state government doesn't have control almost never means that nobody does. There is somebody who is managing uh, the, the petty conflicts, the day-to-day -day behavior, the political but and economic does, does relations. Does that then call for, in the same way we talk about warfare having different uh, different strains, you know, there's asymmetric warfare mm -hmm. as an example. You know, should there not be a talk, conversation about stability and peace in that way, that there's asymmetric peace? That, yeah. you know, you may have criminal groups, as John said, mm -hmm. that are perhaps a greater force for what locally passes for stability than the central government. And, and that seems to me one of the really big challenges is, that, is that our norms for order, uh, there is the drinking water, there is mm -hmm. power, there is connectivity is coming as mm -hmm. a sort of basic human right as well. Uh, but finding ways to not disrupt that stability as, as precarious as it might be, or maybe not even to our standard, but far worse or far better than the chaos that could come. And that's certainly part of the sort of you know system dynamics of cities, sure. right? I mean, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in, in the suburbs. Um, you know, New York City still doesn't make any sense to me. Right, it's even on a grid. Right, you know. Try so. <laughs> LA. Try living in LA. You know. That don't make any sense. And you know, but there are these are essentially self-regulating systems at kind of the the micro level, and you can take that you know to places as far flung as you know Helmand Province or you know uh, Rio de Janeiro or elsewhere that. There's certain things that are functioning, and they're in, if not quite in balance, but they're allowing people to live, you know, daily lives. And figuring out how not to screw all of that up when right. you show up to fix some other large structural problem is, is, you know, um, analytically very interesting, but a hell of a challenge. I think it's it's also going to be even tougher for the United States because literally, as we're as we're engaged around the globe, we're also pulling back our own systems of nation building. You know, we at are home. at home. We are gutting our own systems that keep the lights on and the water infrastructure. Running. Exactly. I mean, our infrastructure has what a D minus grade. Yeah, uh, we're we're cutting emergency services. We're cutting civil service. I mean, we're we're dismantling all the systems that will be essential 
to keeping our troops alive in another city. So how can we rebuild a nation or even a city in another country when we have less and less experience of it right here? That does speak to one interesting, um, both more of almost an opportunity, but it can be a challenge uh, in, in urban environments. Um, you're not going to bring all your own systems uh, in the way that we sort of do yeah. expeditionary warfare right, right now. Um, there's, you know, whether well, it's a, a phenomenon of, of technological hugging, which means that your communication systems are the civilian communication systems. And so if you, like the Mubarak government, want to shut down cell phone service, it means that your army officers can't talk to each other anymore, uh, which turned out to be problematic. Um, you know, or whether you're riding on the existing, you know, road or water network uh, of a particular place. Um, those are some of the considerations where we're not going to bring in, most likely, you know, mm -hmm. the, the amount of uh, sort of the you know, food and, and water that would sustain, you know, a large scale army in that, in that sense. You bring up a really good point because uh, I've done a little bit of work with, uh, with home security forces, basically uh, like vibrant response scenario. And with our North, one of the problems that the U.S. Army has here in a disaster scenario, forget another country, is that our conventional forces are very used to building and owning the infrastructure mm -hmm. in a disaster. They, use, they build the road, right. they use it. So even our own army is training for homeland disasters, trying to understand how do you navigate local roads? How do you deal with the local sheriff? How do you not get in people's way? So we have to learn that here before we even attempt it someplace else. You know, John, uh, some of your work in the video game field and also through your training work, it would be interesting to hear your sense of how you might prepare people for an environment that is so unlike anything we're experiencing at home, even if there are similarities on some levels. But preparing a, a someone who has to deploy either at a, for a special mission category to a mega city environment to a... I, I mean, it's, it, well, the thing, you know, one of the, the notions is you, you, one of the things I think that, I'm sort of getting off topic a little, they, we have this concept of what a state is and what a city is and what order is and you know we we're talking about the ports and the services and police and like you know that hey i'm going to be able to go to the store and it's you know we used to joke about this in video games who wants to live in the world of final fantasy everywhere you go you get attacked anytime you leave a city you're fighting <laughs> monsters and they seem to come out of everywhere and you're like you know, who wants to live there? Like, that's a horrible place. But then, you know, you, you try to bring that back and you ask me, hey, how do we prepare a guy to go to, you know, pick a country in the Middle East? And you can't just pick a guy. It's like you, you don't just make guys who are capable of doing senior level work out of the gate. It's years of experience. I mean, that's why cops don't start as detectives. That's why, you know, a guy joins the army and doesn't go straight into soft. He has to go through a whole program of like, you know, learning languages, embedding with people sometimes as they go out with NGOs. But you can't just magically learn the topography of something. I mean, even in a game or in training, you know, the first time you play a game, you're like, you spend, a, you're running around a rat maze, right? And you have to learn your way around the rat maze. Right. You can't just know that. So there's no shortcuts. There's no, no there, technology that No, there's, a, that. there's absolutely no shortcuts. And, you know, we like to think there are sometimes. You know, a guy, a guy told me something a, a month ago that I thought it's maybe not exactly pertinent to this, but he said, you know, we, we can train a guy. We can spend a million dollars giving him body armor, M4 carbine, ACOG, PEC-15s, night vision goggles. We send him up a hill, and one dude who's got no training with a PKM can kill him and 20 people in five seconds. Because all it takes is, I mean, killing people is real easy once you have the right stuff to do it. You don't need a tank. I mean, that tank, you know, you think about it. Like, what would it really take to stop that tank? How invincible did we think our stuff was before people came up with, you know, 
Yeah, an IED, right? <laughs> an, an, a street that's too narrow, an IED. You run over the wrong guy's car, and he's pissed yeah. off at you now for life. Like, he just picks up a gun, and he's going to walk into a mess hall and shoot a bunch of kids. That would be a video game where every time you shoot a guy that says, person you've just killed has 14 brothers and sisters who are now gunning for you. You know, the, it's it's not it's you know it's true, right? I mean, like yeah. there's consequences to actions, and it's just yeah. like police work, and it's just like, like any any of this stuff, because because the notion of conventional fighting in a city. I mean, you think about one of the things I think about a lot is what is the purpose of taking a city? Why do why do we take terrain? We take it to own it. You know, like you were saying, well, we want to get out of here, right? We don't want to own it because once you own it, you're responsible <laughs> for it, and if you're responsible for something, that's a lot of hard work. You know, you can't just, you know, because if, if Max shoots her dog, now I got to come in and regulate that. It's not yes, just, it's, it, yeah, why did he, I don't know why he did. He's a cruel man. I mean, why, did, or is she going to just go out and call her brother and be like, yeah, Max just shot my dog. Right. We got we to not just kill him. We got to kill his kids. And then, you know, his, his brother's going to find out. And they're like, oh, well, they killed his kids. We got to set his, her family on fire. You know, it's this exponential. It, well, I mean, and we laugh, but that's kind of what happened in Iraq is like there's this exponential tribal violence violence where it's like getting worse and worse. And it, it, that's why I say it's like organized crime with the mafia. You get to a point where you have the Islamic State who are doing such horrific things to a population that, you know, what, like, because what is the goal of the Islamic State? It's to spread an ideology. It's, that's why they don't blow up cities, because they're trying to spread their ideology. In World War II, we flattened cities because we were taking territory. We were pushing to Germany to kill, you know, basically stop Germany, right? So it's an easier to understand goal. And when you, it's, you can't bomb the ghetto flat to get rid of drugs, right? They're just going to move someplace else. It's not a so, solution. So then is, is the other way to articulate the conversation about the future of urban warfare to think about is the future of urban peace, and that the preservation of order and stability is the de facto primary goal, you know, and a national priority for the U.S.? But, oh, I'm sorry. Well, I would just, I just, real quick, it's a balance of power, right? You're never going to have peace. Right. People are always in conflict. It's always about, like, keeping it just dangerous enough so he does, has a motivation not to shoot her dog, right. you know? Like, somebody's going to come and throw him in jail, right? And then, you know, leave his family without anybody to feed them. Then his kids starve, and then he's in jail. And, you know, so that's, that's not a good life for him, so he's not going to shoot her dog, yeah. you know? Max. But, but I, think, I think when we talk about the future of urban warfare, we should really talk about the future of engagement, because that's what it really is, because mm -hmm. it's not just warfare anymore. Right. It's about engagement. And I think that's something that Americans really struggle with as a nation. You know, I, I, I joked about this at lunch, but it is true. I mean, too often the United States looks at the rest of the world like a booty call. You know, we want something like, hey, babe, I'm going to be there, and then I'll leave. And no, it's, it's a marriage. When you engage with a country, that is a long-term marriage. It's, you know, half my family's Catholic, and before they get married, they sit down and the priest says, listen, you sure you want to do this? Because here's what it takes. And I think before we engage, we need to have that national dialogue on every level. So, so how does that dialogue happen, and what is the role that art plays in that? Well, I think with art is that we do need to look to the future. We do need to visualize these wars. We also need to visualize it as far as the home front. I mean, I've said this, that we've been at war for 14 years, and yet there's been almost no movies, almost no songs, almost no TV shows. I mean, there's a little bit like Homeland. but. As opposed to something like World War II or even Vietnam, there was a record. Right after, a year after 9-11, yeah. never happened. Number one show in America was Friends in New York, never happened. And there's been such a disengagement, not just with our forces around the world, but with our public. And I think we need to get back to it. And yeah, it's going to be a downer 
it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be messy, but if we are going to continue to be a world power, this is the price we're going to have to pay. The responsibility that goes with the, to the citizenry as much as leadership. Yeah, we're responsible to the citizens of the other country that we engage in, and we're responsible to our own citizenry. And that, we should never look at engagement like this. It should always be like this. Because <sighs> it's going to be a long responsibility. I think one right. other way to think about this, August, is you know, we, we talk a lot about um, urban operations instead of urban warfare, um, partially because there's actually, a, a, at least you know, in the US military, a wide array of mission sets um, that could take place in an urban operating environment, right? There's, there's no such thing as a coin environment. Coin is a mission, um, right. right? There's no such thing as an irregular warfare environment, right? That is a, a broader <coughs> sort of context. Um, we do have actual doctrine for specific operating environments, and it's, it can be useful, God forbid, to use some of that doctrine on, on occasion. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, one of the things we often use to sort of to get folks into this mindset is a managing a humanitarian assistance mission, right? There's been, you know, a large, you know, earthquake or tsunami in one of the, you know, 80% of the world population, you know, lives on coastlines. Um, you know, this is, it's not uh, a far-fetched site. So a significant number of megacities certainly are in, you know, closer littoral areas. Um, you're not going in to start a war. We're not going in on an invasion. We're not going in on a counterterrorism mission that goes wrong. We're going in to help. So, so and then from, things get real. From a, from a government response, I mean, this sort of evokes the classic, it's a whole of government problem. But, yeah. but that actually is true. As I mean, much it as is, but that's, that's, you know, Janine Davidson calls that the Santa Claus problem, right? The State yeah. Department's not coming, right? So, you know, get, just get over the idea that there is a whole of government, you know, expeditionary mission. So whole of government approach from the long term planning process, right? So if we're, you know, isolationists, we're also very short-sighted. So, yeah. so if we're talking, though, you know, to, to put it into the future two decades out, you know, what are the steps that we might take between now and the far-off, uh, you know, humanitarian mission of 2040 that enable us to do something that doesn't create problems, that, that we don't run over the wrong dog, or, yeah. or uh, that we come with open hands rather than a fist? I think there needs to be much more integration between, like you said, between the entire government. I mean, we have the, the dime principle. Uh, but I think that needs to be truly integrated because... You, the, you want to talk about the dime principle? Dime, just for the... it's, I believe it's a diplomatic, intelligence, military, economic. The notion that when we do engage with a country, we need to truly engage on every single level. Uh, and I think that's, that's incredibly important. And also, it's not new. We used to be really good at this. We were saying at lunch that two years before victory over Germany or Japan, we had already planned the post-war world. And we were good at integrating within our organizations. We were also good at integrating with our allies. So by the time we had VE or VJ Day, we were ready for the next phase, as opposed to uh, the invasion of Iraq afterwards, which was the improv comedy hour, uh, making it up as we went along. And we can never do that again. I mean, a different version of that, I would say, on sort of the diplomatic and, and humanitarian side of things, is to recognize that the people that we need to be engaging with aren't at the national government levels. And that's just not how we train or, right. or right. really plan for these sorts of things. But we're talking about, you know, if you're, if you're talking about what's happening in Karachi or what's happening in Rio or what's happening in, in Jakarta, What's happening at the national, I mean, the national government there is not irrelevant, but that's not what's going to be critical to your mission success, right? So figuring out the, the local political and social conditions right. and the power players involved there, uh, and then empowering people to deal with them. And that's, that's a 
challenge. So, so John, you know, this uh, makes me think again about the upcoming issue you have because this is what we were talking about at lunch and that the evolution you're thinking about who are the power players in many of these environments. So talk to a bit about your progression in the Black Powder Red Earth series from, uh, you know, your first issue, I guess, to where you'll be going next and the role of NGOs and private actors versus nation states using PMCs. Okay, yeah, I mean, for those who are not familiar with my book, the, uh, the <laughs> all of you, uh, the, uh, the first series was about Saudi Arabia trying to figure out how to fight Iran without using Saudi troops for the same reason that you know, it wasn't necessarily a great idea to put a massive force on, on the ground and invade a country that we didn't know what we were going to do with it. Um, I'd like to think that, or I, I believe that, that some of the other nations in that region saw what happened and have learned from it. Um, and you kind of see that in Yemen right now where they're not putting an invasion in, they're doing airstrikes, they have special operations guys there, they're intelligence guys. Um, moving forward, uh, you know, for me, I think that, you know, we are an isolation power, I agree with you. You know, people don't necessarily want that problem. Uh, you know, they don't want to think about it. They got enough issues putting food on the table and figuring out what's in their food, you know. Um, so. So I, I see like, you know, the, somebody told me recently that the world, you know, it's like 20% 20, 20 of the world generates 80% of the wealth. So there's a potential um, for growing wealth in all these other places is huge. So people are investing in them and they want to protect those investments. So if, I, if I'm trying to build oil in a country that's destabilizing, what's my best way in there? Well, I'm going to invest in NGOs. I'm going to invest in humanitarian missions because humanitarian missions need security. And now I've got a whole pool of guys who are really well trained who maybe aren't employed by a state actor anymore who can, I can pay $1,000 a day to go in and, you know, let's get rid of these guys. Take care, do, do, run the mission the way you would want it without encumbrance. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is the thing I've heard the most of when I, in my community is like, we were doing great until somebody kicked down the wrong door, like, you know, you said earlier, and, and shot the wrong guy. And his family suddenly turned against the entire U.S. mission. With something, with, when, you, when you switch to a, a, a corporate interest, and you know, we were talking about Snow Crash and how I said Snow Crash has almost come true, just not quite as cool as it, Neil Stevenson's book. <laughs> but that is kind of where we're going, where like, okay, a company needs, to, a com or an individual, a wealth fund, invests in something, they need to protect that, because they're looking 10 years out, five years out, 20 years out, and because they now have the foothold, they have a beachhead in that region, so in 2040, you know, they may say, okay, this place is in turbulence right now. Who do we invest in? Like you said, who are the local actors? How do we build the different communities into becoming something that wants to work for us and, and actually will not like kill our aid workers or kidnap people and put them on the internet? You know, the, those are for me, and, and they're the fundamental challenges of law enforcement too. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what I'm, I'm saying. You know, I kind of agree with you, Max. It, it's all the same problem. It's just how you approach it, and the and how you approach it is the level of of danger in those regions because sometimes you can't go and build in a community like you know you look at how nations were unified in history and a lot of it's through genocide they went in and they killed everybody who didn't agree with them and then eventually everybody agreed with with whoever is you know gained power yeah exactly you know and and that that's like one of the harsher lessons of history um I mean, it happened in Vietnam horribly, right? I mean, like all the different so, cultures. So we're going to go to Q&A shortly oh, here to give the audience yeah. a chance to participate in the conversation. Okay. Um, before we do, uh, are there one of the questions we've often asked our panelists is what they're reading, watching, playing that has been related to the topic that we're discussing. And since we're mm -hmm. discussing urban warfare, I would recommend, as you can imagine, Max's works, uh, which are extremely 
scary because they hmm. realistically depict the failure of the things that we often forget to think about that we really need to stay alive. Um, but then I'll ask you, Max, what you have used for inspiration, for research that the audience could then onboard. Well, uh, I mean, for, for me, as, as a dyslexic kid growing up, I, didn't, I couldn't read. I literally couldn't read for fun, and I hated that. And so it, was, it took me to be 16 years old to pick up my first book, and it was Hunt for Red October. <laughs> and to me, Clancy was hugely influential because he got away from all this Ian Fleming, middle-aged male machismo, and educated. And as a kid who struggled in school, I loved the fact that I was learning as well as being entertained. And the fact is, I don't believe, they say, write what you know, but just because you know it doesn't mean you've been it. And Tom Clancy was, he was never in the military. He was an insurance salesman from Maryland who was just a military nerd, but he did his homework. And to me, anybody who really does their homework, I think can be wildly entertaining. Uh, right now I'm, I'm reading, and I'm gonna stick my foot in my mouth, please somebody Google this, uh, the book Tambora about the volcano. I just finished it and I forgot the author's name. I'm so sorry if you're here. I'm so sorry if you're watching. You wrote an amazing book. But it is the story of the volcano uh, Tambora, how it essentially affected the entire world, how that climate change affected starvation, economics, politics, writing Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, and for me, making those connections, I find Great. truly fascinating. Aaron? One of the things that I really like about uh, World War Z is, and this happens in a lot of both, you know, whether it's speculative fiction or science fiction fantasy, uh, is that you don't, the, the characters don't know what's happened, right? They, they're, the, all of the, the flashbacks are, you know, you get these sort of pictures of how they learned that they were in the midst of a zombie apocalypse, hmm. right? Um, and, and that's actually like very true to life if you live in the intelligence world, right? So it's one thing to be tasked, find me everything about Al-Qaeda. It's another thing to say, I think there's an Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. And here's how I'm going to go find out about that problem. It's why the first season of The Wire is so amazing, right? right? There might be this thing called the Barksdale clan. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to figure that, figure that out. The only other thing that I can think of in that same vein is the book, uh, Randy Schultz's book, In the Band Played On, about the emergence oh. of the AIDS epidemic, right? What a um, so these, these problems of discovery, right. um, where you don't, it's not the case of exploiting or tracking a known threat. It's about, I think there's a thing after us that we never even thought about before. Um, I'm currently rereading Cryptonomicon, which is not particularly uh, novel, uh, but is a great summer read. Uh, and it, amazingly how well, much like Snow Crash, amazing how well it holds up uh, 20 years That's later. That's a summer uh, yeah. read? That's like a thousand page book. <laughs> Sometimes it takes all summer. But, <laughs> but I can't read Palace of Treason until the 4th of July weekend because right. I'll stay up all night reading it. So. And the band played on. I mean, I think everyone should read that book just to just it's a great study in human failing. Yes. Because just from a scientific point of view, AIDS is really hard to get. And yet, how did we let that genie out of the bottle? And it's such a great chronicle of human failing. John, any recommendations? Um, okay. I mean, I started writing because of, um, not because of comic books, but because of Japanese manga. Uh, the first, first book I ever read was called Area 88 by a guy named Kaoru sure. Shintani. And uh, Shintani wrote a story, ironically, about a mercenary Western Air Force that was fighting against a religious extremist regime for a more Western regime in a country called, uh, I think it was called Aslan. Right. I mean, I, it's been translated different ways. Anyway, that, that was the whole reason I started even reading comic books. Um, I, I only discovered the whole cape thing much later, and I really never got that into it. Um, so that, that's why I started writing. Um, I mean, what am I reading right now? Um, 
I, uh, I've been watching. I've been watching a lot. I you know, it's funny. I haven't been playing any games recently either because I, be, I just beat Bloodborne, but that has nothing to do with Irvin Connor. <laughs> um, or maybe it does. We could talk yeah, later I mean, about I mean, that. I mean, well, it's a game. You're, you're a serial killer, basically. You go into oh, a, a nice. city. Well, a city. That's an interesting story. There, there you the, go. The, 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 there's a religion that figures out how to use a substance that can cure all illnesses. And then it, but it, the, it has a side effect that they don't realize, which it turns the people who take it into monsters. And you show up in the city thinking, they don't tell you anything in the game, you have to figure it out as you're playing it, that the whole city is basically, by the time you get there, has been converted to monsters. And everybody you try to save will eventually become a monster and you have to kill them. And like, it's a pretty dark game, because when you get to the end of the game, you basically, well, I won't spoil it. Anyway, <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, it, I Spoiler mean, avoided. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did not, but no, I mean, it's, it's a really deep game, and it's really subtle. It's, kind of, it's, it's a game that, that I found frustrating in that it, it had so much rich lore to it, but it didn't tell you any of it. You had to really dig for it. So like all the stuff I just mentioned, I was about 75 to 80 hours in that game before I realized half of it was even going on. Hmm. I mean, you know, they, 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 didn't, they didn't pound you on the head like a traditional narrative and say, oh, here's a cut scene, and you should know this, and you should know that. It was much more a, a journey to figure these things out. And, you know, the, the ending is, is open to a lot of speculation even. So that's, that's what I've been playing. <laughs> well, we're going to go to the Q&A section next because we have a, a live audience uh, on the Internet. We want to make sure you identify yourselves by name and affiliation. Uh, you can use this pen name if you need to. Um, and uh, we'll have a mic moving around the room. And why don't we go right here uh, to the gentleman in the tie. Hi, my name is Alejandro Sanchez. I work for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Uh, when I think about future war movies, I think of movies like Starship Troopers, Age of Tomorrow. And one thing that, point, that both movies highlight, and you sometimes highlight in your, in your work, is that they always show uh, fully mixed gender units, where m women and men can find the front lines and nobody questions it. Do you think that this is going to be the future of urban warfare in the real world? You just had, uh, I think it was eight women who applied for ranger school and they all failed, unfortunately, just uh, like three weeks ago. Do you think that this is going to in a way affect how the U.S. military is going to look looks at fully mixed gender units in the front lines? Thank you. Well, actually, it, it's funny you say that because uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but I can tell you that uh, a friend of mine and I are, have met with the company that owns the rights to Starship Troopers. We are trying to resurrect it and go back to the book. Wow. Uh, and one of the things, the only thing, we, we wanted to be as close to the book as possible, but we decided the one thing that we have to do uh, is have mixed genders. Because you, you just can't. You can't do that nowadays, especially now when there are all female units of Kurdish fighters mm -hmm. You know, women and girls fighting for their lives against ISIS. Uh, you can't say, oh, no, in the future, it's going to all be dudes. So I, I think, yeah, that's that. And, and that will be, I think it'll be as natural. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, there was a time when we, we didn't mix the races. And we thought, oh, if you do that, hey, that's the end of the army. Or God forbid we let gay people come out of the closet and fight. That'll be the end of that. It well, might take till 2050, though. Yeah. I mean, it, it could. <laughs> I'm not know, holding my breath. And in, in, in John, in your uh, world that you are depicting in, in your graphic novel and the world that you consult and work with, you know, those sorts of mixed units, yeah, that's I mean, real. There, I mean, there's, definitely, uh, there's definitely roles for females. In, and again, it de de depends on how you define, like, you know, 
I guess, military units, right? I mean, like, I, I'm definitely in special operations because they're special. They're not conventional operations. But I tend to think that the future is more like Terminator, where it's going to be a couple of people, and it's going to be drones, and it's going to be robots. And they're going to sweep through an area. If you want to actually destroy an area, I can't think of a better way to not bring home any American bodies than by sending robots to kill everyone, quite we'll, frankly. We'll mm -hmm. go to the next question here. We'll go to uh, right here. Do, you, do your name and affiliation quickly, please, oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'm Rachel, and I am a return Peace Corps volunteer, if I'm allowed to talk as a Peace Corps volunteer. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess my question, if we could go back to the concept of um, booty call engagement <laughs> and <laughs> what's, uh, what's contributing to that, I, I would agree that there's definitely um, an American culture that contributes to that. But uh, I wanted to ask if, if perhaps the, the role America's playing as far as the roof to the global economy um, and getting in, like not just being involved in one singular engagement, kind of being distracted by a hornet's nest of different engagements and, and, um, and sort of being drawn into, um, into those might also be contributing to that as well. No, I, I agree because I, I think one thing that we need to, to get our heads around as a country is that everything is connected that we live in an interconnected world and there are no more local problems anymore, be it trade or war or disease. You simply can't localize a problem anymore. Uh, so I do, I do think that's important. And I think that you know, the Peace Corps, I think, was a great tool that we had started as an alternative to communist influence because I think what we used to understand about military conflicts before they were military, that if you sent Americans in to help people build up their communities, then we were a deterrent to the lure of communism. I don't know why that went past the wayside. I haven't heard of the Peace Corps for a while. I'm glad we still have one. It would be nice if we had a bigger one. But, but I do think that, that we do need to start thinking of every problem as interconnected, geographically as well as vertically. Christine? Hello, thank you. Uh, I'm Christine Vargas. I'm marketing manager at Avicent, where August is our uh, writer in residence, and we very much appreciate you. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Um, and I also have the distinguished uh, history of being an employee at Random House when World War Z was published. Oh, cool. And it was very exciting, and it's what brought me to DC many years later. <laughs> uh, my question is for the entire panel, um, and it's basically in your jobs in both art and intel. When have you put forth a future national security problem you've identified and believe in and seen your communication successfully hit a government decision maker and seen any action from that government decision maker and what made as small or as large as it might have been that communication successful? There's the money question right there. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll answer for Max quickly, but yeah, World War Z was on Chairman Dempsey's reading list, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I think for, for me, the, the best compliment was I was invited to go to speak at a, at a strategic studies group where I wasn't allowed to talk about it, I'm still not allowed to talk about it. One of those things behind a big door. Let me put it that way. <laughs> One of them big door like groups. A door a zombie could not yeah, get through. A zombie could not get through. A Terminator couldn't get through this door. <laughs> so I go through and on their, on their whiteboard of their strategic planning was the 10th man principle. The notion that if you have 10 people in a room and nine agree, the 10th has to argue. And it just broke my egotistical heart to admit that I did not make that up. <laughs> I said, look, I would love to say that that's, yes, it's from my book, but my book is based on a real interview that I heard with a Mossad agent who said that 
we can't be vulnerable to groupthink. We learned that in 73. You know, you Americans, you're subject to groupthink. It humiliates you. We're subject to groupthink. We almost got erased. So now that's embedded in our structure. So I, but I like that they discovered this through my book. Uh, I don't, I mean, I guess I would put to lie the idea that there's some perfect memo that gets floated mm -hmm. over the transom and lands on somebody's desk and they have a thought. They're a world historical figure and now the earth will change, right? Um, these things, I mean, I worked a lot on the counterinsurgency field manual 10 years ago. Um, that was a protracted insurgency within the U.S. Defense Department to get, you know, a new set of ideas about, you know, the Iraq war in particular, but modern warfare in general. And that was thousands of memos and, you know, office calls and personal relationships and lots of bourbon and, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of dead soldiers and Marines. Um, and, you know, that, to me, that is that process. Very, I mean, it's a protracted one. Uh, it's not sexy. Um, it's, you know, it is literally paper pushing, um, but it's, it's not the one idea, it's the very broad, informal set of networks that get activated to, to make that sort of change. And I certainly have never had anything I do <laughs> influence any kind of government decision maker. I mean, I've, 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 I've helped design equipment and training programs that we help, have helped, you know, soldiers and sailors and Marines come back alive. Um, oh that. Yeah, oh that. Uh, but but no, not 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 for my 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 uh, creative endeavors. At least not my, my comic the books. The interlinking between that work and the creative work is close. Yeah, no, I mean I I, I couldn't do one without the other. Yeah. It's a great question. On the end here. Anthony Clark, I'm with American University School of International Service. This question is for Mr. Brooks. Given the current balance of power in Syria, if zombies were to emerge in the scene, who would emerge as the winner? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> who would emerge as, 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 we mean, who would beat the zombies? Who has the best would, chance? Would, would the zombies win? Would the Assad regime win? Would ISIS win? You know, oh, honest, you, really, you want my true <laughs> cynical answer? Whoever would win would be the private contractor selling the anti-zombie equipment to whoever beats the zombies and the stockholders. That's probably who would win. Let's awesome. go from this side of the room in the uh, blue shirt, please. Uh, my question is directed Let's have you identify yourself quickly. I'm Francis Wilson. I'm an intern at the Middle East Institute. And my question is directed to Mr. Brooks. I know the movie World War Z wasn't the most accurate rendition of oh, some here of we the, go. the things you're going to No, it has nothing to do with the movie itself. It's just a scene in the movie that was particularly evocative for me was the scene where they reveal Jerusalem, Fortress Jerusalem, and it's this island of stability surrounded by chaos. And that was, for me, was uh, redolent of, for example, the green zone in Iraq, or you know, the Assad enclave, fortified enclaves in Syria right now. So I guess to the whole panel, um, how do you see urban warfare being shaped and defined in the future by fortified enclaves within megacities and then chaotic cities where military can't exert any sort of control? It's already happening, man. I mean, look, look, look at Brazil for like the, the best right. example. I just watched uh, HBO, that series Witness, and they had a, a guy who went down um, into, it was, I think it was Rio, and it literally is, it's, it's, it's corporate fortresses where they helicopter dudes from location X to Y because it's too dangerous to drive anywhere. And then the, mil the police is basically a military that goes in and gets into gunfights with drug dealers to make sure one drug dealer stays in power who's they've got to deal with. And you know, that's the future. It's going to be beautiful. I think that there's you know, another idea, right, is that 
is to think about cities as you know, sort of living organisms, and they have a sort of metabolism to yeah. them. And the most vibrant, productive, creative cities are cities that people do, in fact, move through. Yeah. And it's, it's one of the you know, great tragedies of London and New York in the 21st century is, is the enclavization you know, of them, and that you know, yeah. Manhattan is much less diverse and vibrant than, than it might have been. You know, it might be safer, uh, but it's you know, certainly less uh, intermixing in that kind of Jane Jacobs sort of way uh, as it was you know, 25 or, or 30 years ago. Um, so certainly you can see you know, in the face of you know, per real or perceived extreme security threats, the, the instinct to create those fortified enclaves is, is pretty real. But I think that'll ultimately strangle those cities. They won't be world capitals or even national capitals long with that sort of apparatus. Oh, yeah, and, and I can tell you living in, in America's most dysfunctional city, Los Angeles, that w that city practices voluntary apartheid, where there are green zones that are of, you know, essentially rich white people. And I remember when the earthquake destroyed the freeways in 94, and people had to take side streets. And it was this crazy cultural awakening where people didn't realize they lived in a city with other people who didn't look like them, didn't do the same job, you know, maybe didn't work at DreamWorks. Uh, there wasn't a DreamWorks, I don't, whoever it was. But you know, a city like LA is not a vibrant city. It, it is an enclaved city as opposed to, well, not so much New York anymore. But I mean, still, you ride the subway in New York. That's a city. That's people from all backgrounds coming together. And it is a vibrant city. I mean, high security is often a response to a uh, instinct of preservation. So there's the wealth generation versus mm -hmm. wealth preservation dynamic, I think, that yes. will play out in urban design in, in the future. Uh, second row in the back, gentleman in the tie, please. Oh, to Aberdeen, as I listened to all of you, no one has mentioned anything about the history of Arabs and Muslims. And if you look at their history, before Muhammad and after Muhammad, in all their encounters, they have lost many times, they were occupied many times, but they have never surrendered. And when we look at what happened to the French, the French in Algeria fought for many years, and eventually the French gave up, and the Algerians did not give up. So when we look at counterinsurgency in these countries or in Arab countries, the name of the game in, in, in counterinsurgency is that you, you win the, the goodwill of the people. If you don't win the goodwill of the people, no matter what arms you use, no matter what theories, the French tried it in Algeria, the British tried it in Iraq in 1920. The Israelis tried it in the West Bank. They have tried it in Lebanon. They have won, they have occupied, but yet the ultimate goal is winning the goodwill of the people. If you can't win the goodwill of the people, it doesn't really work. So when we engage in Muslim and Arab countries, we really have to understand their history, that they don't surrender. Two, they're very tribal, which means they're very physiological. And three, Muslims do not like to see Christians come and occupy their lands because they have that crusader experience. So recently, when we went to Iraq, people were using, oh, this is a crusade. That in itself created ill will for us in Iraq and in, in many Muslim countries, which brings me to the fact that people talk about bringing experts. When I look around the people that we use, I find people who know very little about Islam, about Arabs, they're people who have you know, a certain perspective. So it, it takes a lot if you want to engage. You really have to know what you're talking about. There is only one American successful engagement. That was in 91 
when Bush and Scowcroft killed Saddam Hussein of Kuwait. The reason that thing was successful, the Arabs wanted us to go there. They were begging us to go there. The UN was with us there. And yet, you know, we did it right. We had, so we should take those variables into account. I, mean, I, th I think this goes to, to Max's point about the zombie-proof door that he crossed yeah. through the threshold and saw the, the, the tenth, yeah. tenth man use the Sir, with all due respect, you're, you're talking about something called history. Um, which Americans, we don't, we don't do history, all right? That's cute that things have happened before us, but we can do better, because America, anyway. Uh, but you know, we, we, don't, we don't study history. We don't, that's one of our weaknesses. We don't learn from it. We don't say, wait, we're getting into a hornet's nest. Uh, I mean, part of that is American optimism, which can be a very good thing. Uh, but sometimes it falls flat where we think, oh, well, the French were in Vietnam, but <laughs> they're French. We're Americans. <laughs> so no, I, I, I think, but I think that's engagement in any place we go to. Right. You have to understand the history of where we are going. And what, we're and also, also not the only narcissist on the planet no, anymore. No, oh, <laughs> just wait. Just wait till China really starts to come yeah, out of its exactly. shell and get involved and say, exactly. hey, we're the Middle Kingdom. Mm -hmm. We invented paper. Check us out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's going to be a fun uh -huh. We're going to... The one British guy's like, oh yes, now you know how we felt when you took over the world. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go to Harlan here, Ullman, with the question. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlantic Council. This is a great panel, and thank you very much. Uh, my question has to do combining reality and what do we do in 2040. By reality, you're not going to change the laws of physics and gravity. You take a look at that marvelous thing up there. And you wonder why an M1 tank was weighed in at 70 tons, because roads and bridges and logistics can't sustain it. And so I think that looks like a nice cartoon, but it's probably going to be a cartoon in the future. And so we have to put in some reality here. My question gets to Max's point about the 10th man. We don't do that very well. If you go back to your point about World War II, and actually World War II was not as comfortable as you may have said. But the decision-making was relatively small. There were a handful of people who were engaged. You think about the government in 2040. Speculate what you think the US government is going to be like then in terms of how it's going to be able to deal with these particular challenges in urban warfare. And how do you inculcate the need for a 10th man in a future which is going to be far more complex and complicated? And by every stretch, government appears to getting worse and not better. That's a really good point, and, and I think I, I have yet, maybe you could correct me on this, maybe somebody could correct me on this, but I have yet to see a real correlation between our expert post-World War II nation building and the New Deal. And I would speculate that one of the reasons we were so good at nation building post-World War II is we had already had a decade of nation building here during the Great Depression. Not really? Not really? No, the, the fact was we drafted so many people that you had mayors and you had chief of police who were in the military. And your point is that we didn't start, we started planning Took a look at the composition of the military, and that had all the people that were needed in terms of infrastructure and local government, and they had supreme powers. And we also recruited locals who already did it. And they were Soviets. Yeah. I mean, which yeah. is which is like not immaterial. So the Germans and the Japanese were absolutely helpless. So you had a very but we also we also kept the infrastructure in place. You know, we didn't we didn't denazify as much as we'd like to pretend we did. I think that the the institutional question is an interesting one. You know, one of the things that follows not the World War II is not just um, 
uh, you know, the nation building that's done you know, over, overseas, but is a wholesale reform of America's national security institutions, right? The creation yeah. of the CIA, um, expansion, of, you know, formalization of certain Defense Department powers that had evolved DOD. during the war. Um, it's interesting to think about, I mean, there's been a lot of certain adaptations over the last 15 years of war, some of which have been institutional. I don't think anybody's super thrilled with the institutional innovations that we've developed in the last 10 years. Um, maybe Intel Fusion at JSOC or something along those lines. But DHS and NCTC are uh, institutional amalgamations, not innovations, uh, I would say. It's a great question to think about what yeah. those things will look like. You know, will we have a continued federation of the intelligence agencies uh, with more and more specialties, or will we finally strip that down and recombine it somehow? Um, I think that's an interesting question to think about. Correct me if I'm wrong, your question was about the US government and how yeah. it will evolve in yeah. 2040. How would you speculate? I think. It's pure speculation. If, well, if people. If people, if people get scared, if people stay scared, they'll keep surrendering their rights to the government to stay safe. And we already have cameras everywhere in this country. I don't know anybody in any community I've ever been to that wants cameras on traffic lights, but they're everywhere. So the government already doesn't trust its citizenry, really, right? I mean, it's not really doing everything that its citizenry wants. And if you project that forward, like, I mean, we, we know the Patriot Act expired. We had something right away that got rid of, you know, that just basically filled in the blanks. You know, I see a more totalitarian U.S. government eventually. I mean, what did George Orwell say about the future? It's a boot stamping in the face forever, right? I mean, that's what it is, you know, until it eventually comes down. I mean, it, power is going to amalgamate continually until somebody uses force to stop it. Because why wouldn't you keep taking until somebody slaps your hand? Steve, you have a question? Thank you. I'm Steve Grundman, the Lund Fellow here at the Council. And I suppose I'm going to direct this question to Aaron, but I'd be interested in the other panelists' Evans. view of it. So since um, getting this project started, I've had the following phrase banging around in my head, and I, yeah, I catch it when I hear it on the news, to command the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of times, the context in which I hear that on the news is our adversaries have commanded the narrative. Um, uh, which prompts me to ask, I thought that's what we Americans and this society and its great entertainment uh, industry was good at, yeah. was storytelling and commanding narrative and attention. And, um, and so what I wonder is, um, I direct this at Aaron because I think among your, the panelists you've worked in close, closer or maybe closest proximity to you know, battlefield commanders. I wonder, do they talk about that? Do they talk about commanding the narrative? And then, and, and is, there, is there actually a role, or is, there, is, there, is that a function of military or, or government that we could pull off without it becoming propaganda? Or, or maybe propaganda, just to ramble a bit here, maybe propaganda needs to be, uh, um, shed some of the pejorative uh, connotation that we've, we've learned about it. That's they would like to command the narrative, and it would be propaganda. And the question is, you know, how comfortable do we want to be with that, if we can use propaganda in a in a value neutral sense and just say you know what it what it is, um, I, I think that part I mean, we actually I mean there are very specific rules right about what kind of messaging the U.S. Uh, military is able to do, specifically with regard to American citizens. Um, you're not allowed to quote unquote target 
messages toward uh, Americans or the domestic public. Uh, and that's internalized very deeply within the Department of Defense, uh, as Dan certainly well, well knows. Um, that said, we occasionally have very charismatic people with multiple stars on their <laughs> shoulders, uh, or even some charismatic Lance Corporals who could do some very interesting messaging on their own, uh, right? Um, and we haven't figured out well how to do that. Um, certainly, there's a lot of, of angst at the moment uh, about counter-ISIL messaging, uh, and in some ways, rightly so. Um, but that, the idea that we are going to centrally dictate uh, messaging from, from, from the West, from Foggy Bottom, about, you know, to, to, to undermine what ISIL is putting out there, I think is, is ludicrous, right? The, it, there needs to be a much more organic, um, you know, sort of local response to, to these sorts of things. No one cares what our government has to say about ISIL to, to begin with, right? It's much more about local communities developing this sort of discussion in, in dialogue. But, I mean, I think there is, Messaging is incredibly, incredibly powerful, and those, you know, sound bites um, resonate because it's what most Americans have the attention span to really digest. And uh, unfortunately, the 24-hour news cycle, in my opinion, does a much better job um, pitting our leadership against one another, and they play well to that media coverage, uh, as opposed to figuring out, you know, hey, this is a real problem. This is the U.S. government's solution to it. Um, we rarely get that sort of unity of effort within, whether it's whole of government or not, but on kind of one side from that side. If I may just, I, I'm not just talking about sound biting. I'm talking about helping people understand complexity with story. Um, well, that's that's the I. And should we should we work on that? Yeah, should well, we of course. Well, I would say that's the failure of civilian journalists who have, I think, have become lazy, who I think don't research and don't do their due diligence the way they used to. It's also the failure of American media, which is afraid of being a downer. I mean, 14 years of war, uh, someone who worked on Saturday Night Live, this is a little bit after my time, but the only real breakout character to come out of SNL in the last 14 years of war is Debbie Downer. That's not an accident. You know, that's deliberate. That, that is a deliberate example of how our media, because our media is profit-driven, and nobody wants to turn people away. Nobody wants to give them a downer, because then they'll tune out. I think there's something else to be said, too. And David Brin, uh, the writer who's at one of our past events, made this point about the movie Avatar, but that often it would not take much for the people producing and creating to be mindful of this. You've talked articulately yeah. about the value in doing that, of having an, a, an enjoyable educational experience in an in a extremely entertaining film or book, and that has got to come down, though, to a very internal motivation. Yeah. I don't think it can be mandated. I don't think it can be bureaucratized. And I think the military would probably not be best suited to articulating that. But the creative community sure can. Yeah, no, it, should, it shouldn't come from the military, and it shouldn't come from the government. It should, it should come from people who are actually doing it, like Thomas Tull of Legendary. Whenever he makes Godzilla or makes some big blockbuster movie, he makes sure that all the military hardware is authentic and that all the organizations are authentic, because he wants everything to be true and Accurate, and yeah. I think that it doesn't take much to do that. Right, um, I'll say this uh, in terms of controlling the narrative. I, I spoke to a guy who spent a lot of time between 2006 and 2009 in Iraq, and he said the most successful program we ever ran 
to convert people in general on a generational level to an Ameri a more American way of thinking or, or wanting a Western, a more Western life was the rap station. They, they, they ran a bunch of radio stations that ran hardcore gangster rap and people listened to it and they embraced it. To your points, it doesn't come from the government. It's actually the American culture, which is actually kind of anti-government that people want to embrace. You, mean, you know, you imagine living in a totalitarian place where you really don't have the freedom to listen to music without getting killed. Um, that's a powerful experience. And like, I mean, I've seen pictures of Afghanistan of, of dudes riding around in the middle of nowhere with Wu-Tang on the back of their Hilux <laughs> on the, next to a PKM as they're going out to like kill some Taliban. I mean, I think, I think that there's a, there's a I mean, you can, I'm of the belief that you cannot steer history. You can only nudge it. It's going in a certain direction. Like, I don't believe the Islamic State would never have existed if we didn't go into an Iraq. It was coming one way or the other. Maybe not today, maybe in, in, in six years. But you can nudge history by, by, by affecting people in the next generation. Entertainment is a great way to do that because all young people like to do things like play games and listen to music and see movies. I mean, this is the stuff we all like to do as kids, you know, read comic books. We do it now. We're lucky enough to do it for a living. Obviously, not you yet. But, um, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like I think that, that that's got more power than, than like some state program where it's like, you know, America's great, and some cartoon walks on sc you know, screen with a flag. That's not selling anybody today, you know? We're gonna do one more question, John Watts, and then we'll uh, adjourn to the, uh, the other room. Uh, thank you, a lot of pressure being the last one. Uh, John Watts uh, from Noetic Corporation. I wanna get back to the creative side of it and thinking about the future. Um, you know, it's often said that uh, anything that someone thinks up in, in movies or in TV show or comics will eventually come true because people get it kind of embedded in their head and they kind of work towards uh, creating that. And this morning there was a, a you know, more uh, focus on the hover bike that the US military is, is focused on. So what I wanna ask you in, in the line of what are you reading, what are you playing, is what is that one piece of tech that you've seen in you know, uh, modern warfare or in Minority Report or Star Trek or wherever that you think will be a really big deal and not in the you know the obvious Skynet robots that everyone thinks is coming for them what's that one kind of different piece of technology that, that you really think is uh, passionate about really think will be a breakout or, or be a big deal in the future I'll let you guys go first Oh, come on. You wrote World War Z. Oh. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm going to speak to you in your language so that you know that we as Americans are not isolationists. <laughs> no, look, the truth is I know this is, this is heresy to say, but I think one of our flaws is, uh, is technophilia. I think that, that we love technology too much and we're always looking at some technology to solve the problem. And sometimes it does. If this are 1943 and I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, I want the best technology possible to sink as many U-boats as possible. Same thing with the Cold War. But unfortunately, especially in something like counterinsurgency, especially in low level in a big city, it really comes down to person to person where you throw all the junk away and you just talk to these people and you build trust. And it doesn't matter whether they're Muslim, it doesn't matter what tribe they're from, who is this human being? What do they want? What are they afraid of? What do they want from me? And that's timeless. Aaron? I certainly don't disagree with that at, at a sort of very basic level. And General McMaster has talked a lot about uh, the importance of the human factors of, of warfare on, on, in that regard. Uh, I might say, though, in the 21st century that while, while hardware 
uh, is less relevant in these fights. Software is still very important. And so William Gibson's book, The Peripheral, which hmm. came out last year, has some just absolutely fantastic, basically, Great time book. travel via the internet, uh, which is the sort of hmm. thing that kind of lodges in your brain. Uh, I mean, from the guy who you know, literally invents the word cyberspace, you would expect nothing less. But there's, <laughs> there's a lot to work with uh, there. Um. You know, it, the, I think the, the greatest innovation that I would have never imagined was the smartphone. And the, the, you know, eventually became a tablet. And now, I mean, now, they're, now phones are as big as tablets, and <laughs> yeah. tablets are becoming laptops. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be, I, I, I mean, I don't disagree that, it, that, it's a, that it's a person to person perspective, but I, I, I'm curious how the internet specifically will continue to affect relations worldwide between individuals even within you know even within america you know you see you see a lot of good and bad things coming about it but i used to work at a company called paltalk and their um, their big thing was they uh, they had a real time voice chat so you could have like a bunch of people in a room yelling at each other at once <laughs> and it was it was kind of chaos i mean i didn't really like the, you know, I didn't enjoy the experience with like a mass of people yelling at each other. But like, you know, the things that it always came down to the same thing, religion and sex. Every time, it, those were the two things people like, liked to talk about. And, you know, Alawaku is one of the people who was talking about that on the internet. And he's dead. And that's how they found him, probably. Um, you know, I mean, you, you open your mouth, an IP address is going to lead to somewhere, and a right. missile is going to get there eventually. Um, so I think the internet is going to continue to change the way we interact with each other on both a social level and as on a, on a power level. Like, like, you know, like you said, Gibson, you know, he, he, he talks about it, right? That's how the power moves away from the central governments is currencies are developed online that aren't beholden to a gold standard or, you know, a bank someplace. They're beholden to other things. And that is going to be, pro I hope in my lifetime I'll get to see it, that's going to be the big change. I'll add batteries. I think if you batteries. can, if you can, <laughs> I know the, important. The, not a very exciting one, but you know, if you're charging an iPhone once a month, you know, if you're creating communities that aren't, uh, particularly in the megacity context, dependent on a grid, on a central authority, suddenly you can have a very different uh, social and, and economic structure around uh, civilizations. Mm. Thank you all for coming. We will have another event on, uh, let's see here, July 7th at 9:30 a.m. to 11 a.m. talking about how to write the Third World War, that's for Ghost Fleet. Um, as well, at that event, to, to our point about propaganda, we're gonna have a series of posters that were, are by commissioned artists and illustrators, as well as crowdsourced uh, works that will deal with propaganda from the next World War. And we'll have those actually on display here, and we're also gonna be showcasing them with Vice Motherboard uh, as well. But let's thank our panelists, let's thank them for their insights, for their passion, and for everything they brought to the debate. Thank you.